Hello and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Talbot. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And this episode, we're beginning an extended discussion of Lovecraft's classic weird tale, The Shadow Over Innsmouth. But before we get into all that shadowy stuff, what is going on? Well, I hear there's a blast from the past happening over at Grizzly Peaks uh, Radio and the Apocalypse Players. Yeah, I, I was lucky enough earlier this year, in fact, late last year as well, to take part in a crossover between Grizzly Peaks Radio and the Apocalypse Players, where we played The Secret of Castronegro, which was published in the uh, first Cthulhu Companion many, many years ago, and somehow had managed to avoid playing or reading until now. And yeah, we had an absolute blast with it. It's, it's going to be perhaps a slightly longer run than you might think, given the length of the scenario, because we dicked around. We dicked around a lot. And <laughs> yeah, I think... If you like the Apocalypse players, if you like Grizzly Peaks Radio, well, yeah, now, now's your chance to see what those two great flavours are like mashed together. Over to Paul now. I see there's some more uh, Eldritch scribblings going on, or Eldritch audio, perhaps, combined. Yeah, Mike and I now have, I think, three stories each at the time of the release of this episode. Each are like five to ten minutes long, so perfect if you're having a tea break. And you'll find our Eldritch stories on mason and fricker's eldritch stories you can subscribe in all the usual podcasting places like apple podcasts or spotify and on the website eldritchstories.com so scott i hear you've been dismembering people always a fun pastime <laughs> not people films matt films but i've recently joined evan dawkin and paul yelovich for a live episode of their tear them apart podcast they do the occasional live stream and this one went out on YouTube on, uh, well, I was about to say the 8th of October, but that's US time. It's the wee small hours of the 9th of October for those of us in Europe. And it's a bit difficult for me to say what happened in it because yeah, at the risk of breaking the magic of podcasting, we're actually recording this before I've done the stream. So I'm assuming it was absolutely fucking marvellous. The thing should have been recorded, it should be on YouTube, and assuming everything has gone smoothly, I'll put a link in the show notes. Paul, on very timely regarding our particular topic of this episode, you've been doing some stuff regarding books and rather horrible places on the coast. Yes, indeed. Uh, I was invited back by Tim and Rob onto the uh, Innsmouth Book Club, episode 72, where we had a, a general chat about a selection of topics mostly in reply to uh, issues that listeners had raised. And we were also joined by Mark Griffin of the 30 Minutes of HPL podcast, which I've never heard of before. So no. uh, I've, I've had to listen to one episode and uh, yeah, I look forward to listening to more of that. Oh, what kind of podcast is it? Kind of weird fiction and discussions around the theme of Lovecraft and other such people. And the, the 30 minutes plus was very much with the emphasis on the plus. So uh, <laughs> I think maybe originally it was 30 minutes, but they've 
expanded. I shall have to check that out. And now on to our main topic, The Shadow of Innsmouth, Part 1. While The Call of Cthulhu has more name recognition, The Shadow of Innsmouth is almost certainly Lovecraft's most influential story. It has spawned countless sequels and adaptations, with Innsmouth and its fishy residents taking up residence in popular culture. So it's long past time we paid a visit to the seaside to learn what waits for us beneath the waves. Whatever it is, I want a 99 flake with it because you've got to have an ice cream when you go to the coast. Yeah, it is a nice little seaside town, I hear. Mm. But you, you say it's like got more recognition than Call of Cthulhu, and it, it kind of has, but mm. it's got a lot in common with it as well because, you know, yeah. the deep ones, we kind of see a, a direct link with Great Cthulhu. And, you know, so Call of Cthulhu and Shadow of Innsmouth, I don't know, seem to go hand in hand to me. Or Finn in Finn. Hmm. Sort of, except Cthulhu as a name, I think, has a lot of recognition. There are lots of people out there who've never heard of Lovecraft and have never read any of the stories who will recognise the name Cthulhu. But if mm. you were to say Innsmouth to them or Deep One, they'd probably just look at you with wide, unblinking eyes. Yeah, glub glub. I got the first glub glub in! <laughs> <laughs> the first of many, I fear. Also, listeners, I just want to tease you. You may remember from uh, episodes such as the Dunwich Horror of Matt doing Old Man Waitley. Oh, <laughs> well, yeah. here we got Zadok Allen to look forward to. And I, I'm looking forward to hearing Matt do some Zadok Allen. Oh, oh my God. I can try. Uh, <laughs> it's going to be brilliant. Yeah, it's got to be something. Just drink a quart of whiskey first and you'll be fine. <laughs> in preparation for this, I listened to the wonderful HPLHS Dark Radio Theatre. No, no, it was in their Collected mm. Works of Lovecraft collection, not the Radio Theatre one. Well, I think they've done both, actually. I listened to their reading as part of their Complete Works of Lovecraft that uh, oh. was I remember, two and a bit or something hours long. Mm. That was nice. They got a varied degree of accents in there. But yeah, I don't look for that kind of level of quality in what I'm going to do. It's going to be nowhere near that bar. <laughs> Andrew Lehman did the reading for the HP Podcrafts episodes about it, and he just, as always, knocks it out of the park. Yeah. Just fantastic. But yeah, all their stuff, as always, I always say, it's all great, and it always is. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so let's dig into the background of The Shadow over Innsmouth. So Innsmouth as a place predates The Shadow of Innsmouth by quite a long way. Lovecraft first mentioned Innsmouth in his story Celepheus, which he wrote in 1920 and was published a couple of years later. In the story, it's mentioned just in passing at the end of the story as the home in the waking world, the man who's known to dreamland as King Karanis. He reigns there still and will reign happily forever, though below the cliffs at Innsmouth, the channel tides played mockingly with the body of a tramp who'd stumbled through the half-deserted village at dawn. Now, I can't remember cliffs in the version of Innsmouth that we saw. That immediately made me more think of Kingsport. Because I know that's definitely got cliffs. There is a little passing mention of cliffs in the drive up to Innsmouth. But this version of Innsmouth is very different from what we see in the stories because mm. from the context of the story and from what we know about King Karanis, this version of Innsmouth is very obviously in England. So whether this is like a prototype Innsmouth, whether it's a 
Dunwich, Dunwich situation or whatever, but this isn't the Innsmouth that we know from the shadow of Innsmouth. I seem to recall it being situated down in the southwest, like Cornwall or somewhere. Yeah, yeah. The next mention comes in Lovecraft's poem, The Fungi from Yogoth, written over the winter of 1929 to 1930. Chapter 8. The Port Ten miles from Arkham I had struck the trail that rides the cliff edge over Boynton Beach and hoped that just at sunset I should reach the crest that looks on Innsmouth in the Vale. Far out at sea was a retreating sail, white as hard years of ancient winds could bleach, but evil with some portent beyond speech, so that I did not wave my hand or hail. Sails out of Innsmouth, echoing old renown, of long dead times, but now a too swift night, is closing in and I have reached the height, whence I so often scan the distant town. The spires and roofs are there, but look, the gloom sinks on dark lanes as lightless as the tomb. And that does seem to echo the Innsmouth that we see in the story, apart from anything else that is in the right location. But the description of it, dark and lightless as the tomb, and the mentions of evil portents and so on, then, yeah, I mean, that does sound like, yeah, our Innsmouth. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. And the reference to spires and roofs and dark lanes. There's also a passing reference in verse 19, the bells. And thought of all the chimes my visions carried, of quiet Innsmouth, where the white gulls tarried, around an ancient spire that once I knew. And so again, yeah, like you mentioned, we've got the spires there, and those do crop up in the story. Lovecraft wrote The Shadow of Innsmouth in November and December of 1931, it remained unpublished, though, until 1936, largely because of Lovecraft's dissatisfaction with the story. We well, you know they say that your uh, your own worst critic is your is yourself. Yeah, definitely, because this mm. this is one of definitely one of his better ones. Yeah, he assumed it was so poor that no one would want to publish it. I don't know why I'd think that. I mean, I know he was critical of his own work, but still, this one seems to stand up really well. Lovecraft's original plan was to experiment with differing writing styles in this story, and he went through four drafts trying different things. This experiment proved a failure, however. In a letter to August Derleth, he said, Use of any other style was like working in a foreign language. Hence, I was left high and dry. And you can find one of the other drafts, at least a partial draft, on hplovecraft.com. Mm. There's a... a, a fragment of a discarded draft which i had a read through and there's a few differences but it didn't seem like majorly different so it was like one or two different names for characters and also i noticed that he called it devil's reef in the draft rather than mm. devil reef so with the apostrophe s on the end it is a typewritten manuscript with all sorts of extensive handwritten amendments all over it, at all sorts of angles and inserted in strange bases. Going over it, I, I did fail my read English role on that. I, I couldn't quite follow it. Mm. 
This is where someone just needs to write in big ball tip at the bottom, just says, rewrite the bloody thing if it's going to have this many amendments on it. <laughs> Despite falling back to his familiar style, Lovecraft was not at all happy with the story, and he wrote in the same letter to Derlith that it had all the defects I deplore, especially in point of style, where hackneyed phrases and rhythms have crept in despite all precautions. At least some of Lovecraft's misgivings may also have related to a run of rejections he'd just experienced, with weird tales turning down at the Mountains of Madness and his failure to secure a book deal with Putnam's. Yeah, I didn't realise this until I was looking in the H.P. Lovecraft Encyclopedia and they mentioned this failed book deal with Putnam's where they were looking at publishing a collection of his works that just never happened. Yeah, it just seems a shame that... He never got to see that happen in his lifetime. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Lovecraft's pessimism was proved partially correct when August Derleth secretly sent the manuscript to Farnsworth Wright, the editor of Weird Tales in 33. Wright rejected the story, but only because it was too long. He decided that splitting it up into parts wouldn't work. But I mean... I'm pretty sure they'd done similar things with other Lovecraft stories like um, Herbert West Reanimator and so on was published in parts. I guess the thing with Herbert West is each part almost stands alone, whereas the parts in this one perhaps don't so much. Herbert West was written explicitly as a serial and that mm. comes across in the structure of it where it reiterates things that have happened before in each chapter and so on. And here, I, I don't know why, I guess Farnsworth Wright decided that if someone came into this halfway through, then perhaps they wouldn't get the context of what had happened in the first half. Hmm. But The Shadow of Rensworth did eventually appear in Weird Tales in the January 1942 edition, obviously, after Lovecraft's death. And it appeared in an abridged form. So all in one issue and had this new opening paragraph that was added to it. I don't know who wrote it, but oh God, it reads... Unspeakable monstrousness overhung the crumbling, stench-cursed town of Innsmouth, and folks there had somehow got out of the idea of dying. It'll never catch on. I mean, I guess if you make it clear that that's not actually part of the story, then fine, but it's not a great intro, and it's completely <laughs> not required. On a dark and stormy night. Well, and also, I just the turns of phrases. Hmm. Stench-cursed town for a start. I mean, it sounds unfortunately comical, but that folks there had somehow got out of the idea of dying just sounds like the tagline yeah. from a really shit direct-to-video movie from the 90s, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Yeah, it, it's pretty dreadful. Or Roger Corman B-movie. Yeah, absolutely. It's kind of B-movie style. But the writing in Shadow of Rinsmouth, I thought, I mean, it's a little while since I've read any Lovecraft, and coming mm. back and reading this, there's there's one or two phrases which I thought were kind of a slightly comical. Yeah. But the writing, I think, really stands up as, you know, some of his best. I think it's great. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I can never decide what my favourite Lovecraft story is. I've mentioned in previous episodes when we've discussed The Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath or The Color Out of Space, how much I love those stories and you know, how great I think they are as examples of Lovecraft or how I think Pickman's model is the best introduction to Lovecraft. But this is certainly up there with his best. 
Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, and, and like reading it again now, I'm like, this is my favorite. <laughs> but I know if I read some of the others, I'd be like probably as equally enthused. But um, when he's good, he's very, very good. The Visionary Publishing Company published The Shadow of Innsmouth as a cloth-bound book in November of 1936. Don't tell me things like this. I'm going to have to try and find a copy now. Come on, Matt. <laughs> While it had a tiny print run of 200 copies, maybe not, not going to find something that expensive, it stands out as being the only book of Lovecraft's work published in his lifetime. They did actually print 400, but they only bound 200 and apparently pulped the rest. Yeah, it was a lot of loose leaves sat around. I remember reading. Mm. Lovecraft himself was deeply unhappy with the book, complaining about the number of misprints, the slovenly format, the slipshod binding, and there were so many errors in the text that the publisher included an errata sheet. Some surviving copies of the book include hand corrections by Lovecraft, and that is the one you want, man. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Even if it's not bound, I mean, the, the one with hand corrections by Lovecraft... At the same time, that does seem almost quite passive-aggressive, doesn't it? Sitting down there <laughs> with mm. all the, the books your publishers just published going, nope, 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 crossing out stuff, writing stuff in. Yeah. Oh, dear. Lovecraft did, however, like the cover art and illustrations by Frank Utpatel. Despite the bargain price of one dollar, one dollar for this book, admittedly that's one dollar in... 1936. But still, the book sold poorly and the publisher went out of business soon after. I'll buy that for a dollar. <laughs> <laughs> and you can see Frank Uppertel's illustrations or a sample of them in Leslie Klinger's annotated H.P. Lovecraft, which is a massively fat, heavy mm. book, which I was carrying around this week <laughs> uh, reading the tale. They're nice little black and white illustrations they're reprinted in the book quite small as if they were previously larger they have a kind of look of lino prints or some kind of print about them quite evocative mm. the shadow over insmouth came back into print quickly when it was included in the 1939 arkham house collection the outsider and others the first collection of lovecraft's fiction so that was published two years after his death yep while Lovecraft never explained the inspirations for the story, Robert M. Price points out in his introduction to the Innsmouth Cycle that Lovecraft wrote enthusiastically about two stories which share, shall we say, common traits. First of these, The Harbour Master by Robert W. Chambers appeared in his collection In Search of the Unknown, a series of linked tales about a cryptozoologist by the name of Gilland. In The Harbour Master, Gilland encounters... A man with round, fixed, fishy eyes and a soft, slaty skin. Evocative. But the horror of the thing were the two gills that swelled and relaxed spasmodically, emitting a rasping, purring sound. Two gasping, blood-red gills, all fluted and scalloped and distended. I think I mentioned In Search of the Undone when we did our King in Yellow and Rob W. Chambers episodes a few years back. And it's an odd book. It's very, very different from The King in Yellow. Obviously, The Harper Master does have this um, sort of sinister form of The Harper Master, this fish man. But on the whole, these stories are more romantic comedy than even weird fiction, let alone horror. But yes, 
I guess I'd sort of recommend In Search of the Unknown if you're after something light and fun to read. But if you're looking for cosmic horror or Lovecraftian horror, despite this link potentially to The Shadow of Rinsmith, you're going to be gravely disappointed. It is not that kind of book. None of our listeners are coming here for fun, Scott. They'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> also, I noticed that the character's name is Gilland. It's got Gil in it, a bit like uh, a character we meet in this story. Not a character, but a place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're quite right. She isn't a character, is it? Uh, but I think it is a name uh, of the area. Yeah, yeah. There's the Gilman house, which we'll encounter later. There is a yeah. character called Gilman in yeah. uh, the Dreams of the Witch House, but That's he seems it. to be unrelated to Winsmith. Well, a lot of people seem to be at first. <laughs> the other story Price points to is Irvin S. Cobb's Fishhead. The title character is a mixed-race man living in rural Tennessee whose appearance is shockingly Piscine. Unlike the harbour master or the residents of Innsmouth, however, he is a sympathetic character in touch with nature, who falls foul of a couple of violent racists. Fishhead was a human monstrosity, the veritable embodiment of nightmare. He had the body of a man, a short, stocky, sinewy body, but his face was as near to being the face of a great fish as any face could be and yet retain some trace of human aspect. His skull sloped back so abruptly that he could hardly be said to have a forehead at all. His chin slanted right off into nothing. His eyes were small and round with shallow, glazed, pale yellow pupils, and they were set wide apart in his head, and they were unwinking and staring like a fish's eyes. His nose was no more than a pair of tiny slits in the middle of the yellow mask. His mouth was the worst of all. It was the awful mouth of a catfish, lipless and almost inconceivably wide, stretching from side to side. Also, when Fishhead became a man, grown, his likeness to a fish increased, for the hair upon his face grew out into two tightly kinked, slender pendants that drooped down either side of the mouth like the beards of a fish. I quite like catfish. Why is he calling that ugly? I like catfish too. I wouldn't say they're pretty. No. Yeah, I wouldn't necessarily like to have a face like one. But I think it's also probably worth pointing out that while the story itself seems to be one very much about someone facing persecution and violence because they're different and in this case very much not white, There's also perhaps an uncomfortable element of the fear at the time that a lot of white people in America seem to have of race mixing and the depiction of Fishhead and his inherent ugliness seems to be in the story related to this. And this is something that I think we're going to come back to uncomfortably over and over again in The Shadow of Rinsmith. I was distracted halfway through the reading when it came to, uh, and they were unwinking and staring like a fish's eyes. I was like, <laughs> it sounded like Quint from Jaws. You ever look into a shark's eyes? They're dead eyes. 
The H.P. Lovecraft Encyclopedia also suggests Algernon Blackwood's John Silent story Ancient Sorceries as a possible influence. While there aren't actually any fish people in Ancient Sorceries, it does however revolve around an insular town where all the inhabitants share a dark, inhuman secret. And, you know, there's a bit of shape-shifting and people adopting monstrous forms, though in this case they're feline rather than piscine. I think going to coastal towns, as I, as I did recently, they are quite isolated places by mm. the nature of the fact you go to it, unless you're driving long coast, you, know, you can't drive through it to somewhere else. So it's kind of, mm. it's a, not a dead end, but it's, unless you drive into the sea, you can't <laughs> drive any further, you know what I mean? So you're either you're going there or you're, you're not on your way somewhere else, is what I'm saying. And that image that you mentioned there in Ancient Sorceries that an insular town where the inhabitants share a dark, inhuman secret. Yeah, it's kind of easy to get that impression of uh, some of the coastal towns mm. because of their remoteness. And, you know, they're, they're busy in the summer season, but then very, that drops off and it's all very quiet. And, you know, through the winter, hardly anyone goes there. And it's easy to imagine they share some common secret among themselves. And I wonder how much of that as well is because the industries and so on are very related to the fact that they're on the coast, you know, fishing and shipping mm. and so on, which obviously is going to set them apart from the other communities in the area that aren't on the coast and the people aren't going to have the same skill sets and is just inherently going to set them apart. And they're kind of notorious among like fishermen and so on for their you know superstitious beliefs. So I'm led to believe. The Wikipedia page for all the Shadow of Innsmouth references 1896 H.G. Wells's story in the Abyss, although Lovecraft never seems to have mentioned the piece. While it does feature a fish man, this creature is purple, has a long tail, and its eyes resemble those of a chameleon. That's a weird mix if ever I heard one. Yeah, the description is an odd one. Mm. I guess there is the similarity you know, there being a fish man, but I, I can't really see the influence there. But, I mean, who knows? Another likely inspiration is Lovecraft's own bus journeys along the New England coast, shortly before writing this story. He visited Newburyport and Gloucester, both of which were run down at the time and may have inspired the descriptions of decaying Innsmouth. And indeed, I mean, Lovecraft travelled extensively all the way up to Quebec, all the way down to Key West. Mm. And he would travel around on a budget as well. Yes. So he would take buses and he would record his journeys and record what he ate. And it would often be crackers and cheese or something. You know, he would do the trips and both the travel and the food as economically as he could, really teasing out what little uh, money he had. And this is very much reflected in our protagonist in oh, yeah. The Shadow of Rinsmouth. You know, the whole reason he goes to Innsmouth, as we'll see, is to, to save money on the travelling. It's a, a cheaper route. And a number of times he's eating, you know, on a, on a strict budget. And he also makes references to his interests of being architectural and antiquarian. Mm. His first instinct when he hears about Innsmouth is to run off to the library and research it there and to talk to the local historical society and stuff like that, which is all very Lovecraft things to do. Very Call of Cthulhu investigator things to do as well. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But everything about Olmsted, and well, well, we'll get to whether or not he's yeah. Olmsted later, but, but everything about Olmsted seems to be an author insert, perhaps up to the end and then even arguably then. While obviously Innsmouth itself is imaginary, Lovecraft's depictions of the journey taken by his narrator have allowed scholars to locate it approximately at the site of a real village called Little Neck in Massachusetts. Again, while the Monuxet River in the story is Lovecraft's creation, its path roughly matches that of the Ipswich River, which runs through Little Neck to the sea. It's called Little Neck. Yes. I mean, deep ones, fish <laughs> in general, have very little neck, is all I'm saying. they got wide necks, though, with gills. Lovecraft also famously had a near-phobic hatred of seafood, which is completely understandable because you should never eat anything more slippery than yourself. <laughs> Wrong. Which undoubtedly colours the descriptions of the stench-permeating Innsmouth. Elsprag de Camp noted that the merest taste of seafood would send Lovecraft into a fit of vomiting, and I completely empathise with him there. <laughs> I think there you meant stench cursed Innsmouth. Matt. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you should have been with us on my trip to, um, went up to Scarborough on holiday and visited Whitby, and there's a, a little, uh, well, a, a tiny little house. It's no bigger than a shed, really. Next door to that is an old barn, which has been there about 150 years, and they smoke fish in there, and then they sell them <laughs> in the little shop. So we got kippers. They were great. Smoked kippers. Oh, you have taken me right back to my youth there with Aberdeen Harbour in Hong Kong. This was in the early 70s, and I don't know what Aberdeen Harbour is like these days. But at the time, I, I just remember being overwhelmed by the smell of the place because it was a, a fishing community, and obviously there were fish markets there, and there was a, a lot mm. of smell of fish, including not very fresh fish. But I think there was also effluent going out into the harbour. There was rotting seaweed. And just the combination of those, the mixture of those, was so pungent that when Lovecraft describes the smell of Innsmouth, I think there is some part of my memory that automatically goes back and connects that to Aberdeen Harbour. Well, also, in, if it's Hong Kong, uh, my memories of Hong Kong, you're going to get the heat, right? Yeah. And any, anything that's smelly is much smellier when it's hot. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I just keep thinking of hugging the uh, the porcelain god and spewing it, even the thought of either of those. <laughs> there are, of course, other more uncomfortable inspirations of, for the story as well, although we shall get to those during our discussion. But for now, we're going to leave you with some adverts and we'll be back after this short break. You're listening to the good friends of Jackson Elias. Listen to donations, keep this show running and every penny helps. If you'd like to support the show, please head to patreon.com slash goodfriendsofjacksonelias. Thank you. Miss Halloween, 
the looters are facing their fears. Now I have that fear. Now Dude, I'm, like, I, I'm realizing I'm yeah. scared of everything. You just unlocked my new fear. I live in a constant state of anxieties. With Deanna Nuval. Mm, spiders. Melinda Macklem. I feel like I say I'm fine with heights until I actually am up high. And special guests, Tina Wonglu. Wait, I'm scared of a head-on collision. And Madeline Hours. Episiotomies. I'm so sorry. <laughs> but these final girls are dead set on getting out alive. Never separate from the group. Don't go upstairs. No camping. Don't be a person of color and just kidding. I can't avoid that. Join us on October 24th and the 31st for the final Final Girls, a horrifying two-part special with Game Master Andrew Gauntlet. Uh, boo. Lock your doors, check your back seats, and tune into the Looters feed wherever you get your podcasts. And now we're back with our discussion of chapter one of The Shadow over Innsmouth. We open with an overview of the recent history of Innsmouth. Over the winter of 1927 to 28, federal authorities raided the town, burning and dynamiting, in great investigative fashion here, an enormous number of crumbling, worm-eaten and supposedly empty houses along the abandoned waterfront. Most people assume that this was part of the war on liquor. We haven't heard that anywhere before, have we? Mm. That phrase really stuck out to me reading it this time because this whole American the war on thing really kicked off, I think, in the popular culture in the early 70s when Richard Nixon launched the war on drugs. And mm. later, yeah, obviously that escalated through the 1980s and there was the war on terror and this whole idea of the war on abstract concepts or, you know, things. And seeing Lovecraft mention it just in passing the war on liquor just seemed to be weirdly prescient. Mm. There is a lovely entitled paranoia supplement called War on Insert Noun Here, which I think is a great, uh, a great title for a book. There are anomalies, however. The force attacking Innsmouth was a large one. While they took many prisoners, enough to depopulate Innsmouth, no one who was captured was ever charged with the crime. Instead, the prisoners were sent to concentration camps or military prisons. That really jumps out, doesn't it, that mention of concentration camps? And it's worth bearing in mind that this story was written in the early 30s, and mm. so perhaps the image that came to mind of a concentration camp or the concept that came to mind of a concentration camp at the time was very different to what we might think of now. When we think of it now, I, I think most people will jump to thinking about the Nazi death camps, which weren't really concentration camps. They were something else. They were something even more horrifying than concentration camps, which are already pretty fucked up. Concentration camps are internment camps for civilian populations. They, The term came from what I've managed to read, the Spanish-Cuban Ten Years' War, mm. when the Spanish forces rounded up Cuban civilians into camps to basically combat guerrilla warfare. But they really came to prominence during the Boer War. The people who made the, the most use of concentration camps at the time were the British. The Americans had done so as well during the Philippine-American War. So 
when Lovecraft's talking about concentration camps here, that's what he's talking about, these places where military forces gather up civilian populations to isolate them, to concentrate them, and keep them out of the large community. They're not designed to kill the people there the way the Nazi death camps were, but they're still pretty fucked up places because people died in droves in them, not because they were murdered the way that people were in the extermination camps, but just because of disease. And I think in, they do start off that way in Germany in '33 when they're just rounding up hmm. like communists, and then it sort of slowly extends to, to other groups, but they don't become the, the kind of extermination camps until, until much later. And this isn't a thing of history either. I mean, it's still going on no. today in places like China with the roundup of the Uyghurs and, and so on. But I feel like in the story, as you read it, you get this mention of concentration camps, but this is seen from our narrator's point of view and we mm. get interesting passages so it says complaints from many liberal organizations mm. were met with less confidential discussions and representatives were taken on trips to certain camps and prisons and then they fall quiet and that protests sort of seem to come to an end and it does feel like I don't know, these, these, the use of concentration camps here is almost benevolent as to what these camps were. You know, they were just people that were shuffled off somewhere and then kind of gotten rid of, and they're like, oh, no, no, we've put them into camps. Oh, okay, really? Hmm, I'm not sure you have. But I think that very much ties in with how concentration camps have been seen in history by the people who implemented them. In some ways... The description here seems to almost foreshadow, I mean, it's a very different situation, but what the Americans did in the Second World War with the Japanese-American population was basically rounding up mm. people and putting them in internment camps because of their ancestries, because the powers believed that they could not be trusted and they needed to be contained for the safety of the larger population. And I don't think it's too much of a stretch to to see something similar here. There's a lot of ambiguity in this story as far as the... I was about to say the morality. I, I don't know if that's the right word, but let, let's use it for the moment. The morality of the story goes in that in Lovecraft, I don't think necessarily means us to take that this treatment of the people of Innsmouth is 100% justified. Or maybe he does. I mean, there's obviously this thing with the people being taken around and changing their minds when they see the people who are being interred. But I, I don't know. It just seems, like I say, ambiguous to me. I think we have to bear in mind here, as Lovecraft often does in his stories, the narrator is talking from the viewpoint of the end of the story mm. at the start. So he's saying, I went to this place and dreadful things happened there. Now let me tell you about how it started. So when he's talking about the concentration camps, this is after everything that he sees in the story. I mean, he is the one that instigates these um, concentration camps. Yeah. The authorities clamping down on Innsmouth is because of what he sees and the stories that he recounts to the authorities that trigger them into actually taking action against Innsmouth. So the fact that he is sort of saying, 
they were rounded up and put into camps. And then, you know, some some woolly liberals came along and wanted <laughs> to stir things up. But when they saw the truth, they changed their mind, you know, mm. and he's saying, you know, I changed my mind too, you know. It's, uh, so, yeah, I don't, I don't think it's clear. I think it's ambiguous. Yeah, because I think that aspect of the story is somewhat undermined by the end, but we'll get to that when we get to the end of the story. Yeah, totally. Only one major tabloid newspaper persisted in talking about these uh, events that had otherwise been quietened down, writing about a submarine firing torpedoes into the marine abyss just beyond Devil Reef, or Devil's Reef if you look at some of the other versions, located a mile and a half from Innsmouth Harbour. While there had been rumours about Innsmouth in the surrounding area for the last part of a century, even these events didn't encourage those living nearby to speak up. There seems to be a general prohibition against discussing what really happened in Innsmouth. Our unnamed narrator is going to do so, however. Otherwise, this might be quite a short story. Just a bit. Lovecraft's notes for the story name the narrator as Robert Olmsted, so that's the name we're going to use from here on in, although he's not actually named in the story. He's just the, you know, the unnamed narrator in the story that we have published. These notes were published in the 1949 Arkham House collection Something About Cats and Other Pieces and include additional details such as Olmsted's family tree, mm. which, yeah, actually I'd be interested to take a look at just for when it comes to the latter part of the story. Yeah, I did see someone reproduce that, and I'm trying to remember where. It's it's in one of the books, I think, or the websites I looked at in preparation for this. I can't remember what it is at the moment, but I'll link to it from the show notes once I work out what it is. Yeah, sure thing. I'm wondering, should that be family tree or family kelp? Growing trees underwater, a bit difficult. Hmm. Realising that what was found in the ruins of Innsmouth could have more than one explanation, Olmsted decides to share his very personal account of what happened in the town. It was I who fled frantically out of Innsmouth in the early morning hours of July 16th, 1927, and whose frightened appeals for government inquiry and action brought on the whole reported episode. I was willing enough to stay mute while the affair was fresh and uncertain, but now that it is an old story with public interest and curiosity gone, I have an odd craving to whisper about those few frightful hours in that ill-rumoured and evilly shadowed seaport of death and blasphemous abnormality. The mere telling helps me restore confidence in my own faculties, to reassure myself that I was not simply the first to succumb to a contagious nightmare hallucination. It helps me, too, in making up my mind regarding a certain terrible step which lies ahead of me. And that's some serious foreshadowing. <laughs> mm. But I do love that phrase, evilly shadowed seaport of death and blasphemous abnormality. Mm. Makes it sound a lovely tourist destination. Olmsted tells us that he has never heard of Innsmouth before taking a sightseeing antiquarian and genealogical tour of New England, because that sounded riveting. Being on a tight budget, Olmsted travels by train, trolley and motor coach, always seeking the cheapest possible route. And now I just have the vision of him in a shopping trolley being pushed down a hill. <laughs> <laughs> That's when you know you're really trying to do it on the cheap. 
But again, we got a bit of foreshadowing there when he's talking about this being a genealogical tour as well. Going back to one's roots. Asking a ticket clerk about alternatives to the expensive train journey from Newburyport to Arkham, Olmsted learns of an old bus operated by an Innsmouth fellow named Joe Sargent. The clerk warns Olmsted that the bus looks like a terrible rattle trap. Worse, it stops off at Innsmouth. Now, this fellow, this ticket clerk, is a wealth of information. <laughs> oh, God, yeah. He's like, nobody wants to go there or talk about it, but I'm going to tell you about it for half an hour. And in great detail, he recounts lots of information to our protagonist. He's the kind of character you'd expect to see in a slasher film that he'd be running a, uh, a gas station. <laughs> He's like, no, you don't yes. want to go up that road there, son. Everyone that goes up there gets themselves <laughs> stabbed to death. Yes, but here's a ticket. That'll be a dollar. But if you think of this in gaming terms, there are three key NPCs in this, aren't there, who are just there for the GM to get information to the players. You've got this clerk, you've got the clerk at the grocery store later, and obviously you've got Zadok Allen. And I'm just imagining being in a game where you've got a GM who's playing these characters and just getting so carried away that you've got the players sitting there with blank looks in their faces, half an hour's passed, and sort of, well, can we have a handout or something? Yeah, I'm not going to remember all this. Yeah, I think we're going to come back to this, but I want to find out some information. Who am I going to ask? Well, I'm going to go over the, from where I live, over the road to Sainsbury's, talk to the guy on the till, then go into town, speak to somebody at the bus stop, and then just go down a back alley and chat to some drunkard for a, <laughs> a while. That's my, like, information. Great. <laughs> Sounds legit to me. It does sound <laughs> legit, Matt. Yeah. Or I could just go on the internet and look it up. I'm sure that'd be just as good. What could go wrong? <laughs> But Homestead is, is particularly intrigued by the way that Innsmouth does not appear in any maps or guidebooks. And he's also very intrigued by the way the clerk speaks about the town. Despite the fact that the clerk is very obviously trying to put him off, this just sells Olmsted on it all the more. No, and I can see that. You know, if somebody's sort of mm, putting you off okay. of a place, you're like, well, at least it sounds notable. Like, yeah. it's... It's so bad, I want to go there and take a look at it, right? It's, um, you know, mm. it, it's not boring. We see Olmsted do this again later in the story when the clerk at the grocery store in Innsmouth says, these are the places to avoid. These are the places where outsiders disappear. Oh, I know where I'm going then. <laughs> yeah. As any good Call of Cthulhu investigator should. Uh. But he asks the clerk for more details and is rewarded with a nice, juicy info dump. Innsmouth? Well, it's a queer kind of town down at the mouth of the Minuxit. Used to be almost a city, quite a port before the War of 1812, but all gone to pieces in the last hundred years or so. More empty houses than there are people, I guess, and no business to speak of except for fishing and lobstering. Once they had quite a few mills, but nothing's left of now except one gold refinery running on the leanest kind of part-time. This refinery belongs to Old Man Marsh, grandson of Captain Obed Marsh. He is richer than Croesus, but some skin disease or deformity makes him keep out of sight. People in the area raised Cain when he got married to an Ipswich girl, upset because his mother was from the South Sea Islands. 
Yeah, so we got the first hint of the the racism that may be at least partly responsible for the shunning of Innsmouth here. Mm. The fact that some of these people are descended from people from the South Seas, they're not entirely white, and therefore they cannot be trusted. But also, I... I love the way the clerk just refers to Old Man Marsh as if Olmsted will know what that name means. He he never explains who Old Man Marsh is beyond his tie to the refinery. But it's, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, it's, it's run by Old Man Marsh. Okay. Well, everybody's heard of Old Man Marsh, right? What, the Old Man Marsh? People in this area always cover up any Innsmouth heritage they might have because of such prejudice. The clerk mentions that old man Marsh's children and grandchildren look like anyone else around here. Although, now that he thinks about it, no one's actually seen the older children for a while. Because they should be seen and not heard. (laughs) And why is everybody so down on Innsmouth? They've been telling things about Innsmouth, whispering them mostly, for the last hundred years, I guess. And I gather they're more scared than anything else. Some of the stories would make you laugh. About old Captain Marsh driving bargains with the devil and bringing imps out of hell to live in Innsmouth? Hmm. Or about some kind of devil worship and awful sacrifices in some place near the wharfs that people stumbled on around 1845 or thereabouts. Very specific on the year as well. It's not like (laughs) the 1840s. 1845. Yeah. I think it was a Tuesday. (laughs) Yeah. The old timers tell of Devil Reef which is above water much of the time, but not quite an island. The story is that there's a whole legion of devils seen sometimes on that reef, sprawled about or darting in and out of some kind of caves near the top. Captain Marsh is rumoured to have made regular visits to deal with the demons there. Demons in inverted commas. I love that description of them being sprawled about or darting Mm. in and out of some kind of caves near the top. What's the problem when Deep One's doing naked sunbathing? It's great. But it does make them feel very animalistic, just that little description. Could just be seals, of course. Yeah. Then, in 1846, an epidemic killed half the population of Innsmouth. Locals blamed a disease brought back from foreign parts. Riots followed, and the population has never quite recovered and remains at fewer than 400. The clerk then offers another explanation for why Innsmouth is shunned. But the real thing behind the way folks feel is simply race prejudice. And I don't say I'm blaming those that hold it. I hate those Innsmouth folk myself, but I wouldn't care to go to their town. That's always Lovecraft saying on one hand, yeah, I know it's bad, but I don't mind the people that hold those thoughts. Yeah, you can't blame them. It's It's just kind of funny that the way he phrases it. I don't know, it's just a funny observation about the character. Yeah. I remember when I was rereading this story a few years back or several years back, trying to understand some of Lovecraft's motivations for writing it. This just seems like a really odd thing. It's it's almost like this moment of self-awareness there that yes, this is just bigotry and and maybe the people of Innsmouth aren't necessarily that bad. And then immediately, because it's Lovecraft, he turns it around and sort of says, oh, yeah, yeah, but racial prejudice is fine. Well, 
he's almost saying he he's not racist, but I can understand the people that are, right? <laughs> yeah. Which shows no self-awareness on the part of the, the ticket clerk whatsoever, because it's like saying I'm not racist, but, you know, it's 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 totally like that. Is there ever any good sentiment that is started with the phrase, I'm not racist, but? Some of my best friends are deep ones. <laughs> but also I think it's um it, it, it's an interesting point here, because like it's not straightforward racism. The people in Innsmouth, you know, when we get down to it, the deep ones aren't people. Yeah. So it's not as simple as, you know, whereas we see in a lot of other Lovecraft stories, the racism, I mean, Lovecraft what held racist views was racist. That's clear. Mm. That's beyond argument. And anybody who, who wants to debate that is is wrong. I think, you know, there's a lot of things that we talk about on this show, which is perhaps our point of view. This isn't our point of view. This is, mm. it's fact. And even the whole, he was just expressing the attitudes of his time argument is bullshit because Lovecraft's friends at the time called him out on it. Yeah. And I mean, like, J.R.R. Tolkien is a, a direct contemporary, and we don't see that kind of racism in Tolkien's work. Well, I'd say here, though, when we see some of his writings, I don't know, the horror at Red Hook, or, or some of the other writings where he talks about groups of Italians or mm. immigrants or so on, he's on about actual people yeah. using racist terminology for other groups of people whose heritage comes from foreign lands, whose skin colour is different to his, and so on. In this there are parallels, but ultimately these people, these these deep ones, they're not people. If we want to look at it allegorically, we can say maybe they're people, but they're not people. They're like fish monsters from under the sea. So I don't think it's as, as straightforward here mm. um, as it is in his other tales. Because the guy's saying, oh, it's like race prejudice. Yeah. Well, it is like race prejudice, but they're literally not human. The two things I'd say in response to that is that the people around this area don't know that. They don't know that the people of Innsmouth have inhuman lineage. Oh, for sure. They may have suspicions or there may be something really off-putting about them because they're, they're not human. Yeah. But they're still seeing it very much through the lens of racism and just accepting it as part of their, their normal everyday racism. Yeah, 100%. But also, I think there's... I mean, this is the thing I keep coming back to with the shadow of Rinsmith, which is, even once you accept that the Deep Ones aren't human, that they are these alien creatures in our midst that breed with humans and that they're, they're weird and strange and off-putting and fishy and so on, the shadow of Rinsmith is still fundamentally a story of how humanity discovers that we are not the only intelligent species on this planet, discovers that we share our world with an alien race that in many ways is very much like us and is biologically compatible with us and so on. And our first instinct is genocide. And I think that is actually a depressingly realistic assessment yeah, totally. Human history is filled with different cultures coming together and the first instinct is for one to start trying to wipe another one out. But I don't necessarily see there being anything 
about the alien nature of the Deep Ones that in this case sets them aside from being human. That means they're, they're treated necessarily any differently than humans treat other humans. And that's pretty horrible, really. Yeah, no, for sure. And I think, I don't really want to spoil this story and say mm. what the end is. I think we should keep that. Yeah. I, I'm sure there's a lot of listeners who, who aren't aware of what the end of this is. And I know we talked about foreshadowing and dropped a few hints, but I'm sure there are people, you know, that are following this. That, and I, I'd rather keep that till mm. the end. And I think this is a difficult topic, well, to talk about full stop, but also without the end... I think it really needs to be discussed in context of the end of the story as well. Like a number of New England sailors, Captain Marsh apparently returned home with people from abroad who integrated into the community. The clerk suggests that this heritage is why people from Innsmouth look unusual in a way that makes his skin crawl. Some of them have queer narrow heads with flat noses and bulgy stary eyes that never seem to shut and their skin ain't quite right. Rough and scabby, and the sides of their necks are all shriveled or creased up. Get bald too, very young. The older fellas look the worst. Fact is, I don't believe I've ever seen a very old chap of that kind. Guess they must die of looking in the glass. Animals hate them. They used to have lots of horse trouble before autos came in. I like that touch that uh, they can use cars, modern technology, mm. just fine because it doesn't rebel against them. But uh, horses, and as we learn later, cats and dogs don't like Innsmouth. The fish do. They're just all progressive-like. In turn, the residents of Innsmouth are suspicious of outsiders. They are especially protective of their fishing grounds off the coast of the town. For some reason, these waters teem with fish even when there aren't any in the surrounding waters. Okay, why is this? Why is this? What are they doing that's bringing all these fish? It can't be explained. It cannot be explained. When a tracked fish it goes wrong. It cannot be explained! <laughs> <laughs> this is the darkest of dark sorcery, isn't it? <laughs> no, no, it is not, actually. This is the real reason Innsmouth is no. shunned. <laughs> <laughs> this is a falsehood. Reading the story, I will attest to the fact that at some point it talks about the Deep Ones driving the fish into the harbour. I'm sure it does. At no mm. point does it mention any apocryphal use of magic. Yeah, 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 yeah. Keep telling yourself that, Paul. The truth must be known. Keep telling yourself that. <laughs> we know the truth. <laughs> They're just sleeping with the fishes. <sighs> the clerk tells Olmsted that there is a hotel in Innsmouth called the Gilman House, though he cannot recommend it. Casey, a factory inspector he knew, stayed there once and was unsettled by the talk he heard there in foreign languages. Oh, dear God, they spoke in foreign languages. Coming from apparently empty rooms. Now that's creepier. The voices sounded unnatural, slopping alike. I do love that use of the word slopping. Yeah. I'm not sure what a slopping voice sounds like, but I don't think I'd like it very much. No. Wet slobbing lips. Someone eating with their mouth open. 
Yeah. Also, the fact he can't recommend it. I mean, everything else he said, nothing. Rec- <laughs> he, he's, he's like he's totally down on Innsmouth, and he heard voices coming from a neighbouring room that was apparently empty. Well, if you, it's kind of weird, right? Because if you hear voices hmm. in the neighbouring room, it's clearly not empty. <laughs> yeah. That's how you know. Anyway. It's a weird way of putting it. I'm guessing what he's saying is that he didn't see the people responsible for the voices coming and going at any stage. But yeah, that is a weird way of phrasing it. Casey also talked about how the locals always seemed on guard around him. His inspection of the gold refinery shows that the books were in bad shape and he couldn't work out where they got their gold from. The clerk muses that it may have been related to the queer foreign kind of jewellery the townsfolk sometimes wear. Alternatively, Captain Marsh may have found a pirate treasure cove at Devil Reef. Trove. I like the fact that this uh, gold is also potentially, there's a maybe a spell out there, attract gold. That would be a really useful one to have for a lot of investigators. <laughs> the clerk warns that the current residents are white trash, in his words. Lawless, sly and full of secret doings. Census takers have found it impossible to survey the population and there are tales of government employees going missing there. All in all, he warns, not a great place to go sightseeing. We've had our racism, now we've got a little bit of light classism just for seasoning. The more isms, the better. So after receiving this wonderfully detailed info dump from the ticket clerk, Olmsted has had its interest piqued. And so, of course, he does what any reasonable investigator would and researches Innsmouth at the local library and by talking to locals. The people he speaks to describe Innsmouth as dismal and decadent, yeah, as, as the average person on the street would, but they don't offer much more. The library shelves are similarly unenlightening, relating that the town was founded in 1643, noted for shipbuilding before the revolution, a seat of great marine prosperity in the early 19th century, and later a minor factory centre using the Minuxit as power. That mention of the Revolutionary War sparked a memory in me that I'd read a story some years back, which I'm pretty sure was White Feather by T. E. Grau from his collection The Nameless Dark, which is a story about pre-revolutionary Innsmouth, or at least people from Innsmouth in the pre-revolutionary era. And it's an interesting story. It, it does some fun things. But while I was reading it, I couldn't stop thinking about the way that it went against what's in the shadow of Innsmouth, in that you know, it talks very much about, as we'll find out soon, Innsmouth changing in the early 19th century. And you know, here it is in the 17th century with you know, very much a deep one influence. But that's the kind of thing which I guess if you did in a Call of Cthulhu scenario, people might complain about because it is going against canon. But at the same time, it was such a cool conceit and a cool thing to do that it just reminded me of how much fun it can be to completely break canon in that respect. There are passing references to the 1846 riots and little on the history that followed. The unfriendliness of the locals is confirmed by accounts of Polish and Portuguese immigrants who tried to settle there, only to be driven out. So I kind of like the way that we get jigsaw pieces that all sort of fit together about the history, mm. because throughout the story there are certain 
like we talked about info dumps. He's talked to the ticket clerk. Now he's uh, using his library use and later he'll get more information and all these pieces. We are getting specific dates and names and places, but they, they link together to form a, a whole. Yeah, Lovecraft's very good at doing that, of mm. laying out a premise so that it's pretty obvious what's happening, or at least it's easy to follow what's happening, and then just yeah. throwing in all these bits of corroborating evidence that, that ground it even more. About the only positive references to Innsmouth relate to the strange jewellery associated with the town. Olmsted meets the curator of the Newburyport Historical Society, a Miss Anna Tilton, who shows him a tiara from their collection. It was tall in front and with a very large, curiously irregular periphery, as if designed for a head of almost freakishly elliptical outline. The material seemed to be predominantly gold, though a weird lighter lustrousness hinted at some strange alloy with an equally beautiful and scarcely identifiable metal. Its condition was almost perfect, and one could have spent hours in studying the striking and puzzlingly untraditional designs, some simply geometrical and others plainly marine, chased or moulded in high relief on its surface with a craftsmanship of incredible skill and grace. Now we get quite a lot of talk of these, and later we see some more of this kind of jewellery and mention of metals. Mm. What do you make of the fact that some of it is gold, but some of it is an unidentifiable yeah. metal. What I mean, what's the deal with that? What do you make of that? Alien. That's certainly my interpretation. I mean, we see alien materials crop up over and over again in Lovecraft from the strange stones that are used to make the statuettes and the Call of Cthulhu and I guess even the colour out of space. And so this, I think, sort of ties in with that, that it is this otherworldly material that just stands out as being, yeah, noteworthy and other. It just seems like, if that's the case, are the Deep Ones terrestrial then? Because I get the impression they are, but the fact they've got otherworldly metals kind of implies they're not. It seems an unnecessary addition to me. I seem to remember a reference in one of Lovecraft's stories, maybe one of the collaborations, to the Deep Ones coming down from the stars or the Deep Ones not being at this Earth. But I can't remember the reference. I like the idea of Deep Ones in space. <laughs> <laughs> well, isn't that the premise of, uh, what was it, Spaceship Zero, the RPG? But more importantly, Admiral Akbar. <laughs> <laughs> There's your sloppy voice. <laughs> you also have that description of the designs on there, these mm. strange geometrical designs that draw Olmsted in. I mean, obviously, you know, as we'll find out later on, there might be other reasons for this. But I like the idea that there is something just inherently about these designs that is mm. quite literally fascinating. Olmsted is fascinated by the tiara, at first for its otherworldly quality, 
Its design seems unrelated to the techniques or styles of any culture Olmsted has encountered. His fascination deepens, however, when he starts understanding the pictorial and mathematical suggestions of the strange designs. The patterns all hinted of remote secrets and unimaginable abysses in time and space, and the monstrously aquatic nature of the reliefs became almost sinister. Among these reliefs were fabulous monsters of abhorrent grotesqueness and malignity, half ichthyic and half Batrachian in suggestion, which one could not dissociate from a certain haunting and uncomfortable sense of pseudo-memory, as if they called up some image from deep cells and tissues whose retentive functions are wholly primal and awesomely ancestral. He is getting a lot from this stuff, isn't he? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but... Again, yeah, foreshadowing there might be a reason for this. Yeah, no, I know. It's just it's just like I I've been in classes where we've interpreted like artworks <laughs> and so on. But man, he's getting some deep stuff out of this. Also, you only have to use the word Batrachian once, I think, for it to be a, a Lovecraftian word. Yes. Because I've never seen that word anywhere else in my life, I don't think. I know what it means now, but I didn't know then. But it's got the word bat at the start and yeah. Ian at the end, like cyclopean. So it's just got that feel, I think, of a, a Lovecraftian word. And you read it and you're like, well, I don't know what that means, but it sounds pretty cool. <laughs> what does it mean? What does Batrachian, what does ichthyic and what does Batrachian mean? Ichthyic's fish-like, isn't it? Yes, exactly. And Batrachian? I'm guessing by what you said, a bat. <laughs> no, it's frog-like. Yeah, frog toad-like, I think, yeah. But not a word you encounter in everyday conversation. (laughs) It's a brilliant word. And I felt like it appears lots, but it only appears this once, I think. So, you know, enjoy it. (laughs) This was not a contender for our Lovecraftian word of the week when there was just one incidence of use. Well, I felt it should have been, but it wasn't used very much. I can't remember we might have used it. One word we certainly did bring up in the Lovecraftian word of the week was awesome. Mm. Because Lovecraft used it very much in its original sense, which you don't see so much these days. Like Bill and Ted, you mean? (laughs) Yes, exactly. Yeah, it's proper usage. But here we have something that is wholly primal and awesomely ancestral. So it is so ancestral that it inspires awe. For all this otherworldly weirdness, the tiara was procured through mundane means. It was pawned by a drunken Innsmouth man who later died in a brawl. That's the kind of title we need. Innsmouth man dies in brawl. Yeah. (laughs) Doesn't quite have the same ring as Florida man, but maybe is slightly only reduced (laughs) fishes. Miss Tilton believes the piece was part of a pirate horde discovered by Captain Marsh. These suspicions were bolstered when the Marsh family offered a huge sum of money to buy the piece back. Mm. Mm, that's a nice little touch. Yeah, and one that I've seen scenario writers in Call of Cthulhu make use of. This mm. idea that, not the refined gold, but the the raw pieces or the original pieces of jewellery and even coinage from Innsmouth might have special significance to the people of Innsmouth, so much so that if it gets into the wrong hands, they will try hard to get them back. 
As Miss Tilton sees Olmsted off, she confides that she believes the rumours of devil worship may be rooted in a secretive cult in Innsmouth, the esoteric order of Dagon, a debased quasi-pagan thing imported from the East a century before. This cult has taken up residence in the former Masonic Hall. It's just so Lovecraft, isn't it, that he's got to get that thing in there about it was imported from the East. It's it's not like a a wholesome American cult or a European cult. It's an Eastern cult. Not like Christianity. (laughs) (laughs) That wasn't imported from the East. Oh, yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. (laughs) That was proper American religion. (laughs) All of this excites Olmsted. He now adds an acute anthropological zeal, which is a phrase I love, to his Mm. architectural and historical anticipations, and he is eager to head off to Innsmouth. Said no one else ever. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to The Good Friends of Jackson Elias. You can find show notes for this episode at blasphemoustomes.com, where you'll also find all our social media links. We have t-shirts and other merchandising available at our Redbubble store. If you're enjoying this show, please consider backing us at patreon.com forward slash good friends of Jackson Elias. Thank you for listening. Well, it is that time once again when we would like to say thank you to people. Thank you, first of all, to you for listening to this podcast. Thank you to anyone who has ever backed us at any stage. And we have a number of new people to thank by name. Thanks very much to Oliver Jars. And thank you much to Elijah Stansridge. Aha. Uh-huh. And thank you very much to my, my old friend David Brewer. And thanks very much to Hermes Trimagistus. He must be getting on a bit. Good to have Hermes on board. <laughs> <laughs> and thank you much to Adrian Jones. And thank you finally to Natalia Dashkovich. And if you are enjoying The Good Friends of Jackson Elias, we would love it if you'd let people know. Whether this means leaving a review somewhere where reviews can be found, mentioning it to like-minded people on social media if the topic comes up, or perhaps uh, just putting mentions in guidebooks where there perhaps are strange omissions, where your favourite podcast for some reason has been shunned and overlooked. Aww. Okay, well, you've been listening to the good friends of Jackson Elias. Join us again next time for more Shadows Over Innsmouth. But until then, it's a goodbye from me. And cheerio from me. And a farewell from me. Hello? Blasphemous Tomes.com. Mm-hmm.